KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is part one of a KYW News Radio in depth series called Facts Over Fear, presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Carol McKenzie. Well, the holidays are here, and Omicron is spreading rapidly. For a lot of people, this is a very scary moment in the timeline of this pandemic. So how do we keep ourselves from allowing fear to overshadow yet another holiday season? Well, for starters, we can arm ourselves with the facts. Omicron is now the dominant variant of COVID in the U.S. It is spreading rapidly. But what we're learning about the variant is changing and growing daily as well. So we called Dr. Chris Johnson at Temple University's College of Public Health to ask her some questions about Omicron. Uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Before we get into the nitty gritty of rising case numbers, Omicron, vaccines, all of that, I'm really curious about what your recommendations are for holiday gatherings and parties. So what I'm personally doing is um, I am having family come up for Christmas, but everyone is going to have to test themselves before they leave and then test themselves when they get here. So that's a rapid test at home. We've been hoarding them just for this purpose to make sure that we can have as safe a gathering as possible. So those tests are really good at telling us if people are infectious enough to infect other people, at least for the event while they're here. So let's talk about the Omicron variant. Of course, that is what's headlining the news these days. Um, we are starting to get some, I guess, a little more solid information about out of South Africa about this. And then as it's spreading throughout other countries as well. So what do we know right now about this Omicron variant? So right now we are still on a little bit of shaky ground with knowing some specifics about it. But what we think right now is that Omicron is milder, but it's a lot more infectious than any variant we've seen so far, even Delta, which of course caused the surge earlier. So Our concerns with that are, yes, milder disease is great, um, but whenever you have 10 times as many people or whatever, whatever that multiplier is who have that level of disease, we still have the potential for overwhelming our healthcare systems, primary care physicians and hospitals. Right, because if case numbers are so high, you're still going to get a percentage of people who end up very sick from this. Right. And predominantly, those are going to be people who are unvaccinated because they have no protection whatsoever. We have seen data that show that the Pfizer vaccine is less effective for the Omicron variant. Um, It's only about 73 percent effective, but that's still better than the flu vaccine most years. Yeah, I just was reading there was a study uh, that that South African study that looked at people fully vaccinated. um, And it's and it's interesting because from what I understand, they're looking at it in the lab and they're not sure, we're not sure you can make a direct correlation right to the real world. Do I have that right? That's right. So whenever we talk about lab settings, we call it the the perfect world setting. And that changes whenever we get into the real world. If you just think about things like birth control, it's 99% effective in the lab setting, but in the real world setting, we forget to take it, don't use it the right way, et cetera. And so it's not as effective. I want to talk a little bit about the genetic mutations of Omicron, because I read that it had 30 of them, which surprised a lot of scientists. Can you explain why that is concerning and what that means? 
So the concern there is that whenever you have so many mutations, it's it's vastly different from the particle that the vaccine was created to recognize, to tell your body to recognize. So it's kind of like seeing somebody um, in their infancy and then seeing them 30 years later, they look vastly different. They, they look a little bit like themselves, but it's harder for you to recognize them. And that's what your immune system is trying to do. It's trying to kind of like age it forward or mutate it forward. And that's why we're seeing it, that that drop in effectiveness in preventing disease with the vaccines. But then how do boosters fit in? Because if that's the case, then I guess why would boosters make the difference if we are being boosted with the same vaccine? So what it's doing is re-upping our immune response, making that immune response as fresh as it was in the beginning. So it's kind of giving you a picture to look back at it and maybe see what some more markers are. It's giving your immune system a chance, like whenever we play the game memory, to, to go back and see so it's easier for them to recognize. So still going to see a drop in effectiveness compared with if it were just Delta or Alpha variant, but it's still better than, far better than nothing. And the other thing that I found really interesting was that Omicron seems to be evading natural protection. In other words, people who've already had COVID are becoming reinfected with Omicron. What does that tell you? So I think that's a very important point. Um, We already knew that the natural immunity only really lasted about six months, um, if that, probably more like three months. But with Omicron, I think it is part of um, the mutation, the 30 mutations is part of the reason that we're seeing it evading that natural immunity. Because with the vaccines, we're given, our bodies are given this kind of blueprint to look for these certain spike proteins and whatnot. But if that changes with that changing so much between a person's infection with the alpha variant or the delta variant to the Omicron variant, it looks so different that that natural immunity may not be able to recognize it as well as a vaccine-induced immunity as opposed to infection-induced immunity. You know, that brings about the question, too. A lot of people hear that Omicron is mild Mm-hmm. And people who haven't gotten vaccines think, I've heard people say this and seen it on social media, well, I'll just get Omicron, right? And then I've gotten COVID, I've recovered, everything's fine, I don't need to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. What are the problems with that type of approach to this? Part of it um, is that even though most people have mild cases of disease, you don't want to be the person who wins the world's worst lottery and ends up being the person who dies of it. The other thing is whenever people are not vaccinated and then they end up in the hospital, even if it's not a a lethal case of COVID, but just needs some extra intervention, fluids, et cetera. If you don't have the space for people to go into hospitals for heart attacks, strokes, cancer treatment, um, because of the COVID outbreak or surging cases, then It could be your loved one that dies of something that could have been preventable and you can contribute to there being either a surge in cases or there being enough room in the hospital for that person to survive. When cases surge like this and there are so many, just the volume of cases, particularly Mm -hmm. with Omicron, 
What is the danger there as, as this variant kind of circulates through the population? What could happen? So just like we've seen throughout the, the pandemic and particularly throughout this year, we can see more variants emerge. We can see variants combine uh, with one another and get better at infecting people. And that's what viruses are meant to do. They're meant to learn how our immune system responds and get better at infecting people because their sole purpose is to reproduce within people and then infect other people. Sometimes they end up killing their host or the person that it's infected. But a lot of times, especially whenever we have vaccines, they don't. And so then the virus has a chance to go from that live person to another live person and infect them better. And it learns all along the way. So the more options we give it to learn, the better it gets at it. And the more of these variants we're going to continue to see. One of the things that struck me when I heard, you know, or read some people saying that, oh, I'll, I can just get the Omicron variant because it's mild. Um, you don't get to pick which variant you become infected with. And in fact, you know, federal health officials are now warning that we're going to get slammed with it, like a double wave of COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've been concerned about how the holiday season was going to look because, you know, last year we saw an uptick in COVID cases after the holidays, you know, like clockwork, seven to 10 days after the holidays, after Thanksgiving, Christmas, even after New Year's. And so we already expected to see that. And now to have a variant that is so much more infectious, I mean, it is very likely that we're going to see this double whammy um, that will probably stretch our nurses and our healthcare system just as much, if not worse, than they have been all pandemic. Which is unbelievable. I mean, two years into it, I can't believe you're saying that. And so, you know, I, I hesitate. I almost don't want to ask you this question, but what do you think January is going to look like? Uh, January is not going to be pretty. Um, I, that's my anticipation is that January will come um, about halfway through January. I foresee us having a stretched um, healthcare system all over. So if you haven't gotten any vaccines yet, it's always great to go get one right now because then you'll have at least some protection as we move into a month from now. And I want to ask you about treatments because right now monoclonal antibodies are mm. kind of like the treatment of choice because we don't have those antivirals approved yet. But if these variants can kind of evade immunity from the vaccines, will they also be able to render these antibodies useless? That is a great question. And the short answer is yes. So we have three versions of monoclonal antibodies at this point. Two of them have been shown to be less effective or barely effective in um, treating the Omicron variant. There is one that is still showing good signs of treatment potential for the variant. But if we're already seeing that now, we really need to double down and make sure we uh, reduce the likelihood of other variants because if it's already happening now, it can certainly happen as we move forward. So then what about these antivirals? Merck has one, Pfizer has one, the antiviral pills. They're, they're asking the FDA for uh, emergency use approval on these. But things are happening so rapidly, and I'm I'm thinking about, okay, we, we now have the Omicron variant, and you're saying as it circulates with so many people, it could mutate even more. So, you know, these pills have been kind of heralded as a game changer, but 
are they? I mean, by the time we get them out there, and frankly, Merck's isn't terribly effective. Pfizer's looks to be more effective than Merck's. But I'm thinking by the time we get them out there, a lot of people think, oh, I'll just take a pill. But, you know, are they almost going to be not useless, but on that path before they're even out there for usage? So any any treatment that provides any help is great, especially when we've had no treatment up to this point. The good thing about these treatments is that they don't work the same way as the monoclonal antibodies. They they work in a way that they bind with the viral particles themselves. So we're not going to see them become less effective, really, um, like we do the, the monoclonal antibodies. But you're right in saying that if you can't get it out to the people, it's not going to be very helpful. So we do need to get those out as quickly as possible. Um, I understand that production is an issue. Obviously, we have supply chain issues as well. But you're right to have some amount of pessimism around that until it's in every pharmacy everywhere. Yeah, it just seems like things are changing so quickly that it's just mm-hmm. rendering, you know, be it vaccines or treatments, less effective in a kind of a short period of time. And people who might be thinking, oh, well, I'll just get these treatments and I'll be okay, it might not work out so well for you. Well, right. Because, I mean, I, I checked this morning and you actually can't even buy a rapid test online that I can see. So if you can't find, even find the test, how are you going to be able to find the treatment? Right. And they are hard to find. I was curious. I, I just shopped for some the other day and um, I heard from a, a colleague said he found them online listed in his drugstore. But when he went, they didn't actually have any. And particularly going into the holidays, health officials have put a lot of emphasis on these at home tests. And I know you yourself said that you are also using these tests to try to keep yourself safe. But if people can't get them, you know, it's not going to help. If people can't right. get their hands I mean, on. other countries like the, I mean, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, you can get them for free or get a seven day kit for 80 cents. And we don't have that availability here. I mean, even if you can find them in store, they're $25 for two kits. I mean, that's two people. That's not, that's cost prohibitive. And so it puts people who are lower income at a greater risk because they don't have the opportunity to know their status. Right. And then if you have to apply for uh, health insurance reimbursement after the fact, you still have to come up with the money. And like you Mm -hmm. said, if it's a family of four, you could be spending $100 on these rapid tests easily for just maybe one one occasion or one visit. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about vaccines and they've been pushing, health officials have been pushing us to get boosters, saying that it really, you know, it's going to protect you against Delta for sure. It's Mm -hmm. It it gives you some protection against Omicron. But there are still... um, a segment of the population, and that is people who are pregnant or want to become pregnant, who still seem to be holding back on getting vaccinated. And we know that the the disease is can be more severe statistically mm-hmm. in that segment of the population. So, you know, what are your concerns for this group, particularly as Omicron kind of spreads like wildfire? Yeah, so actually, I was pregnant. Um, I recently had a child and I had to make the decision in January about whether I was going to get vaccinated based off of the data that were out there. And even at that point, we were seeing that pregnant people were dying at much higher rates because with their bodies being so taxed from, you know, creating and carrying another human, 
they were actually um, having to be put on ventilators and having complex, severe cases that oftentimes ended in death. All of those are preventable deaths. I mean, even if you have some level of protection, just one vaccine, that's going to be better for you as a pregnant person. I'll also put out that it's also for recently pregnant people. Um, People who are recently pregnant still recovering from that are still at, at risk. But if you are a pregnant person and concerned about how the vaccine is going to affect your child, well, there's never been shown to be a long-term impact of vaccine on any person. Is that immediate immune response? And if anything, look at how people have turned out so far. There are studies that have gone out. I was part of it um, for how pregnant people and their babies um, fared after they got the vaccine. And so just educate yourself, inform yourself, and make the best decision that will preserve your life as well as your baby's life. Because if you're not well, your baby's not going to be well. And what do we know at this point about what the mother passes on to the baby by way of antibodies and protection? So um, the vaccine itself does not go into the baby. It's the antibodies that your body makes. So it's something that's natural. Um, Your vaccine tells your body to make these antibodies, which is a natural process. Those antibodies go into the fetus. And then if you're already, if you, your baby's already been born, you're breastfeeding, then the antibodies go to your child through the the breastfeeding process. So if you haven't been vaccinated and you're breastfeeding, it does take about two weeks for those antibodies to get in there, but um, it's a great protection and a little weight off of your mind uh, about the health of your child. There's also a push, as I mentioned, I think, uh, for boosters. And I'm wondering, do you think um, the term fully vaccinated is going to change as we move through this to mean more shots? So um, the NFL actually has already changed it to require booster doses. So I think just looking at that example, we are going to see a change in what fully vaccinated means that you're going to need to be vaccinated and boosted. Um, Some job requirements are already moving from requiring people to be fully vaccinated to already having that booster shot or having it by the end of the year. So I think we are going to see that and we're going to see it relatively quickly, particularly with the expected uptick in cases. Do you think we're going to need uh, new vaccines altogether? So I think that this is going to be kind of like the flu. Every year, our flu vaccine is just a little bit different to make sure that we're accounting for any new strain or which strain is more prevalent, is going around more. So that's kind of what I anticipate more, just little tweaks to the vaccine every year, but not like a whole new thing. It wouldn't be something that your body wouldn't recognize if you had one before. Yeah, because it it just makes you feel like we're forever going to be chasing this. It does feel that way now. Uh, yeah. It never had to be this way, but a lot of a lot of choices got us to this this point. So there have been a bunch of different variants, but most of us have never heard of most of them. And I'm wondering, so what makes a variant a variant of concern? And it seemed to be kind of determined pretty early in Omicron. It, it seems like, and, and maybe it's just because by the time the news gets to us, it seems fast mm-hmm. in that they traced it to South Africa. They pretty quickly determined it was a variant of concern. And then the next thing you know, it's kind of exploding. And so I'm wondering when you're following viruses like this, because you've done this many times before yourself, 
you know, how do you figure that out? Like, how do you see a variant and go, oh, this this is going to be a bad one or this one's not going to like we don't need to be super worried about this. So a variant of concern is one that is more severe or more contagious or both than other variants that are around. So there are some, if we think back to the original SARS back in the early 2000s, that was pretty self-limiting. It killed people relatively quickly. So it wasn't very good at its job in getting to other people. So that can be the case with some of the variants that we don't hear about, that they might be more severe, but they just don't transmit as well between people. So once you start seeing contact tracing, obviously is still a big part of it. And if you see a lot of contacts end up with the same variant, then you have an idea of how infectious it is, especially if there was an event or something where you can make assumptions about ventilation and whatnot. Um, The key to actually being able to identify a variant, though, is that genomic surveillance, actually testing the genome. So right now in the U.S., most people who have been identified as having the Omicron variant are fully vaccinated people. But people who have an infection after being fully vaccinated are more likely to have their um, their variant type sequenced. So it might not actually be that fully vaccinated people are more susceptible. It's just those are the people that are getting tested. That's also the case in Botswana and South Africa. They both got hit really hard last summer with COVID-19. And so they're, they ramped up their genomic surveillance to be able to find these variants more quickly than places like the U.S. So um, you have to actually be looking for a variant to find it. And then once they found it, they obviously um, did some contact tracing and talked to people to see how quickly it was spreading. And then, of course, went into the, the lab experiments like you spoke about earlier. So this makes me wonder about herd immunity. That's a term we've been mm-hmm. we've been talking about since the beginning of the pandemic. And the theory, if I have it right, is just X amount of the population would have been infected. And so then you had you know, herd immunity. But now I'm wondering if that all goes out the window with these new variants, particularly with people who have been naturally uh, infected previously becoming reinfected with Omicron. Right. So people who have been infected, we've already talked about, they have very brief immunity um, and that they're more susceptible to these variants because their body recognizes exactly what was in it, not the kind of general shape of it, like the uh, vaccine-induced immunity. Um, with a more contagious variant, it makes it even more difficult to achieve herd immunity. So measles is the most contagious disease still on the, on the earth. Um, it was second only to smallpox, which has been eradicated and it takes about 93 to 95% of people being vaccinated with about 22 million children and about two and a half million pregnant or recently pregnant people not being vaccinated. Just that part means that we're not going to get to herd immunity. But if you factor in all the other people who have been uh, eligible for the vaccine this entire time, then we are far and away um, unprepared to come up with herd immunity either by that Um, previous infection or by vaccine. We're still having a lot of debate about masking in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, here in Pennsylvania, uh, it is now up to individual school districts to decide. And so there's this patchwork in that 
School districts, let's say Montgomery County Health Department is still advising that kids mask up. In Bucks County, we have a couple of districts making them optional. Um, what does that mean when it comes to containing spread? One, because, of course, viruses don't know boundaries. But two, I'm wondering what you think about that, like what your advice is would be for schools when they're considering whether or not to make kids wear masks. Um, yeah, so you make a good point. Just because people go to one school district doesn't mean that that's the baseball team that their kids are on or the soccer team. So, um, you know, viruses don't know bounds. The What I think about the district by district thing is it's a product of how political we've made this virus. And if we would just come up with a standard across the U.S. and say, if transmission in your county is above this threshold, then all of the schools have to have masks in them because then that takes the pressure off of the governors, the local officials, the school board members. It's cut and dry and people know the expectation. I think it's really important for us to know the expectation um, and have it easily um, quantified for people to just have it in their head um, so it isn't it doesn't become more of a political debate. And there's still debate over, I hear people saying, well, masks don't work. Um, do they? Do masks stop the spread of COVID? Absolutely. So um, we've seen this uh, presidential administration has really pushed vaccines, which are great in four to six weeks. Masks help prevent cases now. If you see an uptick in cases now and institute a mask mandate, then you're preventing cases starting today. And so it's about putting those things together, encouraging people to get vaccinated, but also making sure that people are wearing masks to reduce the transmission as it stands now. Now, if you wear a mask under your chin, obviously, no, it doesn't work. But if you wear a mask properly and everyone in the room and everyone on SEPTA wears it properly, then you are preventing cases right now. They are effective. When you look back at kind of the progression of this pandemic and where we are now. And I know you said January is going to be ugly. What do you see for a timeline, though? You also said it's not going to be forever. So what are we looking at here? Are we looking at another year of this? Um, so we... This is a hard question to answer, and I think it's because we've been trying to answer it for the last two years. Um, we've underestimated this virus far too much, far too many times already. So I don't really want to put a time frame on it. Um, I think once enough people get vaccinated and we all act for the community good, then we can start to see it wane. We're going to see in the summer, it ticked down again, just like we did last summer, because people get outside more and ventilation and all that. Um, but as far as when we're done with it, I don't think I can say, and I don't think you would find a scientist that would give you a straight answer. Yeah, it's fair enough. Um, <laughs> the thing that, you, one thing you said um, about masking, particularly in schools, is that if you have uh, community spread basically at a certain rate, then you need to mask up. But I'm going back to last summer when numbers were way down. And so all of a sudden we were like, oh, great, you can, you know, you can take off your mask, you can move about freely, move about the cabin. 
And then numbers went up. And so I'm wondering, why not keep wearing the masks or shouldn't we keep wearing masks even when numbers are low to keep those numbers low, even though we all want to take them off? Yeah, so that is ideal. If we would all wear our masks when we're indoors and in shared spaces, where whether it's shopping or, or traveling to work on public transportation, that would not only keep COVID-19 down, but also flu and many other respiratory viruses that account for tens of thousands of deaths across the United States yearly. So it, that would be ideal. I do think it's a hard sell. Yeah. This goes back to vaccines. Why is it that some areas with higher vaccination rates are now seeing higher case counts. A lot of people, again, who don't agree with the vaccine say that just points to the fact that vaccines don't really work. So why are we seeing that? Well, I think it's important to understand what a vaccine is supposed to do first. So a vaccine doesn't keep you from becoming infected. A vaccine keeps you from potentially having any symptoms at all, which is great or being hospitalized and or dying of a disease. So just because you test positive doesn't mean that the vaccine doesn't work because you could have been a lot worse off if not for having a vaccine. So I think that's one thing to be aware of. Also, people who are vaccinated and experience symptoms are more likely to get tested. So there's a little bit of bias there in who, who's being tested. But also with increased vaccine rates, we are also seeing a decrease in these mask mandates. So if you remove one layer of protection or multiple layers of protection, like reducing um, capacity in stores, as we'd seen, if it's full capacity, um, then you're taking away a lot of that protection. The vaccine is not a catch-all. It's meant to be one of an a number of protections put into place to prevent cases. So whenever you put that forward as the only protection, you're going to see an uptick in cases. Which kind of brings me back to kids, because we're talking about some schools making masks optional. And particularly when you're talking to kids 5 to 11, uh, the CDC says right now just about only 10 percent are fully vaccinated. Right. So yeah. that... Um, kind of goes to one of the numbers I brought up earlier. That's about over 20 million people in the U.S. who are not vaccinated based off of that 90 percent of those of children in that age range not being vaccinated. So that's a massive chunk of our population. It's about 7 percent or just shy of 7 percent of our entire population. Um, and with that, you know, thinking from a community perspective, that means there's a lot more opportunity for community transmission, but that also means that we are going to see more children in hospitals and doctor's offices because they're the ones that are still susceptible. Dr. Johnson, we're almost at the end of 2022. We've been, you know, almost two years into this pandemic, and I'm thinking as we get ready to ring in 2022, if you could think back on the last year and offer us your your reflections on where we've been. So over the last year, we've actually been able to roll out the vaccines on a mass scale, and we've seen deaths and hospitalizations drop as a result. Even with those vaccines, we saw that stark increase, uh, increase uptick <laughs> um, in cases of COVID. Um, and I think we can learn from that with the Omicron variant, not to underestimate the disease, to make sure that we're putting all of these protections in place and to protect not only our elderly, but our children, either by getting them vaccinated or making sure that everyone around them is vaccinated or tested. 
Um, so I think there's still a lot of lessons to learn, especially in the U.S. around making sure that there's access to vaccines, treatments, and testing. Um, but there's a lot of good that's come from this year as well. It's just a matter of a a matter of us taking the opportunities that have been given to us by scientists and listening to people like Dr. Fauci, who have made an entire career off of science and presenting facts. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Facts Over Fear is a KYW News Radio in-depth special presented by Independence Blue Cross. I'm Carol McKenzie. In part two of this special, we'll talk with Dr. Brian McDonough about keeping fear from ruining your holidays and how our mindset needs to change as we move forward through this pandemic. You can listen now on the KYW News Radio in-depth podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.